Thanks for joining us once again on Core Ideas, the podcast where we delve into all things related to lake sediments. As always, we're your hosts, myself, Adam Jesiorski, and my good friend, Josh Steampod. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good today. And, no guests uh, this week. It's just no. us this week. If you tuned in hoping to hear someone else uh, contributing, this one is just going to be a solo effort, a uh, solo between the two of us. <laughs> <laughs> Original host effort. But, and dynamic duo only. You know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, no special guests. So what should we talk about? Uh, well, I was thinking in terms of continuing the current arc of topical paleontology. Of, uh, and there's one topic that came to mind that is pretty much always topical. And that would be um, using paleolimnology to investigate mining impacts. Sounds good. Definitely. It is a, an episode or an episode or a topic we could have found people to uh to bring in to discuss because it's definitely one that paleolimnology is actively being applied to um including some of our own work for both of us so uh, this is one uh, yeah. reason why i feel a little bit confident in not having a guest is we've done, both done some work in relation to uh mining impacts uh which i'm sure we'll get into later um but uh I think I think it's a good go. fits in the fits fits in the slot, and basically, uh, in general, when we're talking about mining today, just talking about resource extraction in general. So the act of removing stuff from the environment at an industrial scale, um, and because this often has an impact on the surrounding environment and ecosystems, and sometimes these impacts are quite profound. Yeah. Uh, and historically that often would have been like precious metals or base metals for things, but the term can be applied very broadly to any resource extraction, uh, whether it's truly mining in the like classical sense of the definition to take oil out of the ground, uh, is not really the point of the episode to get into those kind of semantics. We're talking about resource extraction industrially and the potential and often very significant uh, impact associated with that on nearby ecosystems, including water bodies. And we've touched on some of these topics in the past, particularly through the history uh, series, because resource extraction and the associated emissions are fundamentally tied to the development of paleolimnology as a science, like especially uh, in terms of acidification. Um, but more broadly, uh, this is always going to be a topical issue as resource extraction is fundamental to the modern world. And I'm not sure where I've heard it. It's like a bumper sticker. It's associated with like mining in general. But basically, if it's not grown, it's mined. And yep. uh, no one's growing laptops or microphones or cars anywhere. So Oil, yeah. I mean, it can uh, grow biofuel. Yeah. So maybe that wasn't the best answer, Josh. <laughs> but uh, in in some cases uh that may be the case but absolutely uh, especially as we ever increase the amount of technology that we're using you can recycle some materials from previous uses but in a lot of cases uh, especially as the scale and the application and just uptake increases we're going to need more stuff out of the ground yeah and all all mines are interested in something specific to that region. And so as a result, all, all mines and all mining impacts have very site-specific impacts. And I don't think there's a general SO2 scrubber equivalent that can ever be applied writ large to mining emissions. Um, and so because we've got, there's a wide variety of mines, there's a wide variety of concerns and a wide variety of locations. And, yeah. and, um, and we very much are, are, looking at this from a Canadian perspective and Canadian examples. Uh, but be, even saying that there is a huge range of such examples in a Canadian context. And there are, um, and then typically all these examples have various types of impacts associated, whether it's directly from the extraction of the material of interest, transportation to and from 
the location, because often we're talking about quite remote locations, uh, storage of both the resource of interest and any sort of waste products that will be going ongoing until there's some sort of final cleanup after the eventual closure of the mine. Yeah. And, and even then, even, yeah, even then, if, if the company continues to be in business, a lot of these mines end when the company folds or just effectively leaves behind. So if there is a cleanup uh, and it doesn't fall to government and local communities to try and do that, generally the remediation is only responsible for the impacts on the direct site itself, the mine site, the tailings, ponds, not the broader landscape. So there's always going to be this unsolvable uh, from a remediation perspective impact in the broader environment. Yeah. And the broader landscape will typically will be affected as well. But usually in terms of like mining impact studies, usually you're looking more close to the actual point. And, you know, the typical chronology that's associated with the impacts of resource extraction would be anything associated with uh, the exploration, um, basically the finding of the resource, some sort of direct transformation that is coincident with the construction of the mine, because usually it's more than just a mine being built. Uh, airports, roads, access, land clearance are all going to be associated, mm -hmm. associated in some way. Um, a variety of things associated with the operation of the mine. Um, the most obvious examples would be atmospheric um, emissions. So that would, you know, in the acidification example, um, we're talking about uh, um, acid uh, precipitation being um, induced by emissions from mining operations or smelting operations or whatever associated. I guess, you know, resource extraction and processing, I guess, would be a more kind of catch-all term for it. Um, and then things like tailing storage and, um, you know, accidental releases and, um, eventual cleanup, long-term storage of any long-term nasty things. Cause in some cases, uh, that is part of the closure of the mine as we'll get to when we're talking about giant mine, that, um, there's a lot of storage underneath, uh, the, the mine is now being used as a storage location for a lot of the waste products that were generated and will be basically indefinitely. And because of this is all kinds of issues, very specific to the location. Yeah, it can be, I mean, it's a vital part of modern civilization technology, but they can leave mess behind uh, throughout their lives uh, right into, well, for some, like, like Giant Mine, which you've alluded to, infinite amount of time like moving forward there's no final window on how long the impact will last uh, in some respects so definitely something that has a very long duration that we can apply some of the methods we've talked about to uh, trying to understand what those impacts are and what they may look like into the future so as we've been alluded to um, there are a variety of problems, environmental issues associated with uh, resource extraction. And we've got a very Canadian focus in pretty much everything we ever talk about on this podcast. So we're yeah. going to just like rattle off a couple of Canadian examples. Uh, some of them are very well known um, and different things being mined in different locations and some of the impacts that would be associated with them. So the yeah, we when we were like planning this, we, we weren't really sure how we were going to go about doing this, whether we would kind of integrate the paleo into it or kind of look at really classical examples sort of from a Canadian perspective. But I think this makes sense. We'll get a broad idea of what some of the ecological environmental impacts could be and then work through how paleo has or could address those moving forward. Yeah. And so if we begin, and then also kind of think of it in terms of a timeline of resource extraction in Canada, um, Sudbury is a classic example, um, and it's been in, in the news a lot as we've just passed uh, the 30th anniversary of the uh, signing of the Clean Air Act between um, the United States and Canada. Um, and that was because at one point Sudbury was, 
I think in hindsight, it was been um, scaled down to the second largest point source of acid emissions, because I think there was uh, somewhere in um, the Soviet Union that was comparable, but the data was not available. But at the time, it was believed to be the largest point source of acid or sulfur dioxide emissions on the entire planet. And that was because of the um, uh, the mines that began there in the 1890s, um, basically mining for nickel and other base metals. And that date back to the 1890s with open roasting and eventually the development of smelters and a very serious operation built up around Sudbury that has been running for, you know, the, the earliest ones beginning in the 1890s. Yeah. yeah, it was way more than this, like 130 years now. Yeah. Yeah, unbelievable uh, long history of uh, extraction and continued extraction. It's not like some mining operations that have very short lives because the resource is used up quickly, like gold and diamonds and things like that tend to have fairly short mine durations. The Sudbury Basin has so much base metal in it, in this impact crater, uh, that the, I don't think I've ever seen any estimate of it ever extinguishing itself. I'm sure eventually it would, but it's not going to be closed anytime soon. There continues to be always further interest in mining that resource. So a good example to start with and <laughs> probably the one that will continue the last after all of these moving forward too. Yeah. And um, so the environmental, the impacts associated with it would, would be uh, acid deposition and this, uh, you know, let's say acidification of surface waters uh, all, all around um, the, the general area, impacts on vegetation. It led to the construction of the like iconic super stack, which was very much in the vein of the solution to pollution is dilution kind of uh, mindset, which was spreading it over an even bigger area. And it was just in all the uh, newspaper articles in the last week read that uh, it's no longer really needed. It's uh, going to be coming down. So, oh, well. Yep. well, I didn't know that. Hmm. Um, That'll completely change the like land, the, the visual of the, of the area for, it'll be yep. quite different. And, uh, you know, the impacts on the surrounding location or extreme. And then, um, like even like if I talk, asked to talk to Sudbury with my mom, uh, even before we moved to Canada, I had heard of Sudbury because that's where the astronauts went to train. Uh, before before <laughs> yeah. the uh, lunar landing, although I've since yeah. found out it wasn't to do with the landscape being devegetated. That wasn't the re reason. There was some sort of geologic kind of interest in terms uh, of... Uh, but anyway... But it's highly uh, magnetic. It has a, like a, a magnetic signature that might be similar. Yeah, you never know. Yeah, I don't know. But uh, um, no, it's world famous uh, in terms of the impacts and um, has, you know... Uh, is also, I guess, uh, in many ways, a, an environmental success story. But things like the Clean Air Act, uh, scrubbers removing SO2 from the emissions. So that's the point that the super stack's no longer needed. And then even in my lifetime, like I don't know how, how much time you've spent in Sudbury, but I remember going there on class trips as a kid and being shocked by the amount of like bare rock, you know, like yeah. front yards and stuff. But then going up there in the last, you know, much more recently than that. And it, it, it is transforming as the yeah, for sure. is coming back. Mm -hmm. All right. So that's example number one that we'll be talking about a little bit. Um, and then another one is one that Josh is much more familiar with than me, but would be a giant mine, which began in the 1930s. Yep. Gold mining in the Northwest Territories. So there's a huge history of mining. It sort of built the Northwest Territories and Yellowknife in particular in a lot of ways in terms of population and that sort of thing. Uh, and a lot of that was centered around gold mining in and around the city of Yellowknife, the best known of which is the giant mine. There was an earlier mine that ran for a long time to the south, but it wasn't associated in the same way with the environmental story, the negative environmental story that uh, came from giant mine, just based on the nature of the rock. So searching for gold, gold is found usually mixed with something else uh, geologically and in the giant formation that happens to be as arsenopyrite. So there's a fair amount of arsenic in the gold deposits and in order to liberate the gold, 
that has to be removed or broken away from it in some ways. And one of the ways they did that was to roast the Arsino pyrite. Um, and that produced a significant amount of arsenic trioxide dust. And so the giant mine began in the, really began operations after the Second World War. And in the early stages, they didn't do anything with that arsen uh, uh, arsenic trioxide dust. They roasted and it went straight out into the environment um, for quite a long time. Uh, on, no, it wasn't until some pushback and, and an unfortunate death of a local community member that they started to bring those emissions out of the immediate release to the environment and to capture those through different technological means uh, and brought the emissions down. So when would that have occurred? If the mine began Operation 3s, when did like the kind of... Uh, I should know the exact year, but in, in the 50s. So for, for uh, almost a decade, they, they released an enormous amount of arsenic on a daily basis into the, into the environment. And this is one thing where I'm, you know, going to show my ignorance. Um, did they, was it recognized what was going on in terms of the arsenic releases and how damaging it was? Or was there like a bit of an ignorance associated with it? Or is it just like, we don't have to, so we won't? I'm not sure entirely. I, I would imagine they, they should have known. Uh, it's not like it was only in the 50s that we realized arsenic was dangerous. It was known, so. you know, in antiquity that arsenic <laughs> was a poison. Uh, the, uh, I think that, what's that? <laughs> yeah, so I'm feeling rather silly right now. Okay. Yeah. No, it's okay. Um, no, it's a good question. And, and um, I think it, it may have been a similar kind of case of the the solution is dilution. It's a, a pretty empty landscape. The population of Yellowknife is small now. In the 40s, it was miners and First Nations community members who were not, uh, were not at the top of the uh, concerns of the mining companies. And... Uh, and it was, you know, the prevailing winds pushed it away from town. So, oh, well. Um, but in the end, it, you know, arsenic is a, a persistent metal, uh, metalloid. It gets into the water, uh, it gets into the sediments, which we'll talk about. And uh, it, it has negative impacts, but not in the same way. It doesn't kill off all the vegetation. So uh, another kind of hidden impact to some extent. Eventually the giant mine closed and... Uh, all of, and the, now the issue is remediation because it's on the, the dollar of the federal government and uh, just to remediate the site. And the biggest concern is not the tailings ponds or any of those things. It's the fact that once they started collecting this arsenic trioxide dust, they had to put it somewhere. And so they stored it underground in the, in the old mine shafts and other locations um, thinking that it would be kept in the permafrost and the permafrost would be frozen and seal it in there. And there's enough arsenic underneath of giant mine to kill every human being on the earth. Um, it just frozen into the ground and they have to keep it that way forever. So yeah, that's a, that's a big, big concern moving forward. It will be the most expensive mine remediation in Canadian history. It already is and it, it's not done. So, um, this is one thing that's come up a couple times when I've seen talks about this. Um, uh, what is the cost of the cleanup relative to the actual value of the mine? Like, is it like in terms of what was actually extracted from the mine? Like, was it I'm it's not one sure. of those things where um, the cleanup is more expensive than the value of everything ever produced by the mine? Yeah, it's it's on the same scale. It's not like a, a fraction of it. Certainly more than any royalties that would have been paid to the federal government. The, the Canadian government is losing money on giant mine from what they got. The companies made money and, and ended, you know. Um, when did the mine close? It was a series of... Uh, it closed officially in 2004. It stopped production in 1999. So. Okay. Uh, 20 odd years uh, since then and they continue to work on it so that's a big one and it's a, it's part of some ongoing research in all of our uh, the Pearl lab and and the lab that I was a postdoc uh, and associate in before came to York so ongoing work but maybe we should move on we've talked about Japan yeah. mine and we set a good stay uh, stage we won't maybe have to talk about it as much when we describe the paleo but 
Yep. What other things have we done to this planet, <laughs> this country? <laughs> oh, well, um, well, the big one um, in terms of, I guess, um, public perception today would be the, uh, moving along our t- uh, timeline, would be the beginning of the developments of the oil sands in the 1970s in uh, yep. Alberta and then uh, into Saskatchewan as well. But uh, my timeline of when the oil sands in Saskatchewan began or oil extraction discussion again? Is that as early or is that a bit later? I don't. I I'm think it's sure. later. Uh, I don't know for sure. I would imagine it's later as they've expanded out of the e- most easily uh, removed resources. Um, have you ever been there? Have you ever been to the, the uh, tar patch? Nope. It's. Oh. Uh, it's. Yeah, I don't know what it would have looked like in the seventies, uh, but it is the scale of it is enormous. You know, the, uh, I've been f- several times, both from above, from the air and then on the ground and, uh, any place where they have the, you know, those like touristy kind of stops to stand next to the, the big digging devices and the dump trucks, the scale of everything is absolutely enormous. Uh, and that includes the scars on the landscape. Yeah, no, my knowledge for this is all driven by general photos and newspapers and magazine articles and like the standard kind of like um, trying to give you a sense of scale. So like the a normal sized dump truck would be able to drive through the front grill of one of the dump trucks that yep. they use that you're always seeing from aerial photos and think it's just a normal dump truck. It's not. It's like a super monster dump truck. And uh, um yeah, and so it's just, you know, and this is to basically uh, um, get oil, um, but the actual mining is of bitumen and then requires some processing to go from there to actual oil. Yeah, yeah, it's not, uh, it, well, it, it, there's lots of arguments about how clean it is relative to other resources, but it is one of the more energy, one of the more intensive uh uh, hydrocarbon deposits on the planet to process and that's because it's bitumen so it's already a very heavy oil product and it's mixed with sand uh, in its deposit and it's, so it's very challenging to separate the sands and then extract the bitumen to uh, a, a consistency that can then be shipped because we don't refine uh, much of the product in in situ in the location so uh there's a lot of energy that goes into that and there's a lot of it like i remember like reading an article national geographic like more than 20 years ago like comparing in terms of like hydrocarbon reserves on the planet might is it it's number two isn't it behind saudi arabia i think it's Third, I believe the Venezuelan reserves, it's it's close. It's certainly Saudi Arabia's uh, oil fields are the largest in the Arabian Peninsula. And then it's either Venezuela or uh, the oil sands. Uh, I bet you that article called it the tar sands. It's become a bit yeah. of a, a, a dirty word uh, yeah, to no, refer to it that way. Yeah, well, um, yeah, it's probably, let me see what, 2000-ish probably. It'd be around the time that I had a National Geographic subscription or I was a member of the Ge- National Geographic Society, I guess. Um, and uh, Quite. Yeah, and so back then it was 100% referred to as the tar sands and was not the massive political issue that has become And uh, in terms of opposition and you know the huge economic engine of the last two decades and through all its ups and downs, like, I guess. Certainly for Alberta. Yeah. seemed very foreign at the time. I think actually of like, you know, like, Oh, you know, how could Canada be a, you know, Petro state doesn't make any sense. Yeah. You think of oil tankers and the Gulf war and, you know, just oil fields on fire and big, uh, offshore oil rigs. And it's very different than that. Um, but in in terms of the environmental impact, there's a number of different components. Uh, what we generally are, or what we have been talking about, huge dump trucks and big scars, is is surface mining, 
Uh, but you can also mine in situ oil sands, so mine deeper reserves that are too deep to dig off all the overlying material and scoop them up into big trucks and then haul them away to be processed. Um, and that it has other challenges associated with it. But from a general perspective, so from a general perspective, uh, we're talking about sort of atmospheric component to all of different, you know, just releasing it into the environment from being capped by soil and rocks and trees and stuff. Um, the flare stack kind of component. So there's all sorts of flaring going on as material is removed, gas material, et cetera. A huge concern is tailings uh, because there's a lot of uh, oil sense processing water that needs to be integrated into removing the sand and the heavier components out of the, the bitumen so that it can be put into a rail car or a pipeline, whatever it is. Uh, so there's a lot of issues associated with the oil sands beyond sort of the single environmental thing from arsenic or uh, acidification or those kind of components. It's a really complicated problem. All right. And we'll gloss right over that complicated problem, go into the next one. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and so, We'll solve them later. <laughs> oh, we're not going to solve any of them, but we're just giving some context okay, for uh, the problems that are out there, I guess. Um, and then... Continuing in uh, resource extraction, I guess one that has come, um, you know what, this is where I have my history again breaks down, but I, I think of it as a newer thing, but like the diamond mines of the North um, is kind of exploding onto my radar, I guess, beginning in the 1990s. I'm sure there are some that are much older than that, um, but things in like the barren, barren lands of the Northwest Territories. And again, have you, you've been up there as well or no? Yep. I have, yep. so, yeah, this is, I'm, I'm an Ontario boy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, yep, definitely. And, and that's another one, right? I think people have gotten it, gotten used to the idea now about Canadian diamonds, and but for the longest time it was, no one really thought of Canadian diamonds. Maybe industrial diamonds as opposed to gem quality. You know, diamonds came, you, they, they were purchased in, uh, in, the Hague in Belgium or Brussels or wherever, and they came from Africa. But that's not the case. Uh, since the late 90s, I think Acadi is the first of the, I may have it backwards, but I think Acadi is the first of the mines and it opened in 98. Um, there has been several large diamond mines uh, in the barren land. So this is the area north of Treeline, kind of moving north and east away from Yellowknife and away from Great Slave Lake up towards the Arctic archipelago into none of it. It works almost right up to the none of it border. North of Treeline, cold environment, no one, there's no uh, established full-time uh, settlements in that area. Of course, uh, First Nations groups use that land, home to the barren ground uh, caribou herds and things like that. So it's a very in theory, pristine uh, wilderness environment. But then find some kimberlite pipes and they come and dig out of these massive pits in order to extract uh, the, the diamonds. And associated with that is building all of the community needed to house the workers. And, you know, you can land a 737 at Diavex Airport. And, and, uh, and, yeah. And, uh, and, and all of the uh, material. So one of the concerns about diamonds is that you have to get it out of the frozen rock and the, the geology, the deep geology. And uh, they do that with blasting. And uh, the nitrogen fertilizer associated with the nitrate uh, explosives that they would use at an industrial scale is one of the kind of environmental concerns for receiving waters. Yeah. And um, that is unusual problems i guess they're based on the local geology because i guess one of the issues uh i've been involved with up there is looking at um calcium enrichment of the landscape in relation to some of the effluent from the mine which is the absolute opposite of what most of the work that i've done in uh, looking at calcium decline in terms of a leg as a legacy of its uh, acid deposition so here you have the reverse you have Naturally soft waters being enriched in calcium and yeah. uh, 
it's like heard it described to me at one point, but it's like the recovery of nearby lakes from their pre-impact state. I'm like, wait, wait, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> Hold on a second. What is that's, that? What's that okay, even that's not quite yeah. right. Um, and yeah, uh, and on top of that, though, there are also in, another concern is um, fertilization from phosphorus because you're breaking apart rock, right? Anytime you bring the surface area way up on crushed rock to get the, the nice, pretty diamonds out of it, um, you're increasing the potential for leaching of calcium, other base ion, other base like ions, uh, and phosphorus too, which is only found in rocks. So the potential for a eutrophication component in some of these really, res, uh, really pristine lakes. Yeah. And especially in regions that are relatively nutrient poor, you're very cold, uh, north of the tree line, seasons. Not, yeah. don't need a lot of nutrient inputs to get a eutrophication uh, effect happening within some of those surface waters. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. And so I guess the common theme through all of these uh, issues or um, types of resource extraction uh, is that uh, paleo is useful for studying all of them. Um, the angle of the approach of the study uh, would be quite different, but throughout all of them, there's always going to be a, a common theme, and that is uh, searching for information about baseline conditions or like uh, to get some sense of how things have changed and all but the newest ones like in our diamond mine example is probably the only one on our list where there's some sort of sampling programs conducted prior to construction of the mine so there's at least some sense of what things were like in the before times so after going over all these environmental impacts. Uh, what is this podcast about again, Josh? You caught me having a drink of water because I thought you were going to launch into it, but no, you threw a question to me, Adam. Um, uh, core idea. So paleo limnology podcast and the finish of that, that last little section there, the idea that we need to establish baseline conditions and no one was sampling in these locations sounds pretty familiar. Sounds like a place that paleo records can really be quite uh, appropriate, quite applicable, and fill in a gap that just can't be answered in any other way. Yeah. Um, having a tool set that you can get in, at least indirectly at what things were like before um, the environments were changed, um, there aren't really any other alternatives. And especially in Canada, it's the land of lakes. Um, there are lots of uh, surface waters and sediments to sample around all of these. And on top of it, in most of these cases, the impacts are so profound, it leads to incredibly dramatic paleo records to the point yeah. where you just look at the sediment. And um, for me, one key like example I was personally involved in, we didn't mention on our list, but it ties into like the Sudbury base metal kind of impacts was iron sintering near uh, Wawa, Ontario. And there was an area northwest of the town um, that was heavily impacted by the sintering plant. And over the time that the plant was operating, you had uh, lakes that would have been circumneutral, um, driven down to pHs below four. So heavily, heavily Crazy. acidified. Um, and again, this was open, uh, this was iron roasting uh, and iron sintering. And then when you pulled up a core from the lake, you know, it'd be like brown sediment, brown sediment, brown sediment, brown sediment, and then all of a sudden, bright orange sediment and it's like i wonder if we could somehow date this core would that orange sediment coincide with the operation of the plant i don't think i've ever seen a picture like that oh it's going to be the we've already decided it's going to be the show image um it's unbelievable yeah and spoiler alert it did and the <laughs> um and so, yeah, so it's just using that as an illustrative example of like how profound these, Im these impacts can be in the, in the close to the, um, to the so source, the point sources of the uh, emissions or whatever it might be. And another thing that really sticks out in, in a lot of these, and we kind of alluded to when talking about Sudbury, is that, you know, significant inputs are required to maintain that level of environmental 
impact or damage because um, you know in the wild example the plant the plant shut down in the late 90s and when I was up there in the early 2000s like the rapid bounce back was uh, incredibly apparent because you know like you cannot maintain a lake in that sort of geology at a pH without four without putting a lot of work and a huge amount of energy and once that stopped um, uh, you know the lakes were on their way back up to circumneutral, if not, um, they were chemically recovered, if not biologically recovered at that point in time. And you could see that when you walked around because uh, everywhere you looked, there would be like white birch. That was all about shoulder high at the time because it all basically started growing. You know, once, once conditions reached a threshold where, okay, we can grow back, white birch was in and then basically exploded. And it was all about the same height everywhere because it's been growing for this, you know, 10 years or something like that. Yeah. At uh, that point. It's an interesting and, example. And so it's on the one hand, it was, uh, Oh my goodness. You know, this landscape is absolutely hammered. Uh, but then on the side, you know, uh, was, was it Jurassic Park? Like nature finds a way, you know, it's like, uh, um, <laughs> life will find a way. Yeah. <clears throat> life will find a well, way. I think of it as like, uh, like it's exactly it. Like to keep an ecosystem so depressed, which is what what it's doing. It's like something that floats, and you're holding it under the water. You have to keep the pressure on, and eventually, it, if that's relieved, it's going to bounce back. Now, not every ecosystem is going to. Some things, or every part of the ecosystem, uh, really depends on the nature of the stressor and the uh, compartment, for lack of a better word, that was impacted. And the duration it takes, so something that's long-lived is not going to bounce back if biology is recovering at all compared to something chemical because there's flushing and all of the... You really need to understand the limnology, I guess, is what I'm trying to say, in order to understand the potential for recovery. And, you know, and then it all becomes a case of question of what is the recovery in relation to the baseline conditions? Is it recovering to the way it was? Or is it recovering to a third state? But the key thing is for all of these is that, you know, almost have this whipsaw change between various states and they leave, you know, very obvious signals a lot of the times in the sediments. And this is why paleolimnology is great for studying them. Um, and and they're the recovery. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Um, because it's like you look at the sediments and we, what was it like before? We have a timeline, things changed. And so when, uh, the Wawa example, I was looking at zooplankton or cladocerans and basically the broader community was massively restricted down to just a couple of organisms that are able to tolerate the, uh, um, the heavy metal concentrations. And at the very top, you're seeing a bit of uh, um, diversification again. Uh, wasn't clear at that time if it was going back to the way it was. Maybe now if someone went back and record the lakes 10, 15 years later, it'd be more apparent because there just wasn't enough sediment in that like. 10 year window to be able to say anything. Um, but you can come at it from a variety of angles. You can look at it in terms of the direct impacts um, left by the mining uh, operations or not. I keep saying mining, but I'm using it as a catch all for whether you're mining, smelting, sintering, whatever yeah. is producing the uh, impacts. So then we're talking about things like measuring the concentrations of the metals themselves in the sediments, um, like the arsenic, for example. Yeah. And and some of them are, you know, you have to think about that because arsenic is a, a complicated metalloid and how it behaves, it, it tends to uh, have some mobility in sediments. Now, when you're talking about so much impact, then you're still, you might get a, at a diffusion of the peak as opposed to a really defined one, but it's still, you know, a usable in that sense uh, for pinpointing impact timing, those sort of things. So in our giant mine work when we had this one lake that was tiny little lake just off the mine lease getting as much impact as you could imagine the the sediment was three percent arsenic by weight at the uh height of the mine release component so there was no question there mobility wasn't going to be a concern but in other systems you need to think about the the limnology and the uh, biogeochemistry uh when you're looking at the direct products of mining in the in environment but sometimes it's also the process, right? Like the acidification stuff you're talking about. So just as an aside, when you collecting those cores, were you aware that the sediments were 3% no. arsenic? 
Nope. I, uh, we sectioned the cores in the kitchen of our hotel. Uh, and looking back on it, I was actually looking for some old field photos for an unrelated thing just the other day. And you can see the line of uh, yellow uh, in the core in hindsight. Probably should have thought about it. I didn't, we weren't really thinking about it. It was before the project had even started. Um, so it was kind of an, we were there and we had the opportunity to take some of these cores. Um, so yeah, in hindsight, happily uh, haven't noticed any uh, l- legacy effects to my personal health. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah, no, it was it was quite high. Yeah. So if you were to do it all over again, knowing what you know now, it would have been some more precautions. Uh, well, I have taken. done it. I've been back. Yeah, I've been back to the lake a few times and uh, definitely wore gloves <laughs> and sectioned it outside. <laughs> yeah, less licking of the sediment cores. Yeah, I don't happily don't do that. I have a fairly clean technique, I hope. But uh, yeah, that's. Um, it's one of them for sure. Okay. Um, so yeah, so that would be like a very extreme example of the direct impacts. Um, then you also have direct impacts of the process um, that lead into, I guess, um, so that would be thinking of things like acidification. So the sulfate emissions raining back down on uh, the landscape, uh, lowering the pH of the surrounding surface waters. But then there's also a huge amount of indirect impacts that can be studied. And there we're talking about things like biological and chemical and more broadly ecological. So things like how have uh, the diatom communities responded to acidification over time and how has a community changed? And then you can get back at that in a roundabout way through a transfer function to actually reconstruct changes in pH through time. Yep. Or look at community changes. Um, if you can't reconstruct uh, a specific indicator, so diatoms don't respond to uh, arsenic pollution. But uh, we found in some of our work that it seemed like the uh, planktonic community was more impacted than the benthic community, probably because there was some protection in the sediments associated with bacteria and that kind of thing, uh, algal kind of mat. Uh, deposits are generally shown to be a little more tolerant than open water where they're really at the mercy of the stuff dissolved in the water. So those kind of direct community impacts and shifts that might indicate a logical response to the contamination, for lack of a better word. And then, um, you know, there's lots of studies examining uh, impact differences between chemical recovery and biological recovery. We mentioned it slightly, but to just get at that, uh, just because your pH is bounced back to circumneutral doesn't necessarily mean your biological community is like, all right, everything's back to normal now, let's go. Um, Depending on the level of impact and the amount of time that's been impacted, um, you know, they may not be able to come back or there may be uh, more of a time lag associated with this. And then that's when you're getting into questions related to, like, for example, again, going back to the classroom, you know, how viable is our, the seed bank um, of like diapausing eggs in the sediments um, and versus uh, dispersal becoming a factor? Like how, you know, how are these organisms going to find their way back into the lake if the lake itself has become um, more suitable for them to return? And are they able to return or has something else gotten a foothold and a new ecological state is reached and that your old, you know, there's new squatters basically that were able to uh, tough it out through the, um, the bad times. And they're like, nope, we're not leaving. We like it here. Find a new home. Yeah. Something that's a generalist and can tolerate a wide, wide range of conditions uh, may still be adapted. It may not be perfectly adapted to those new conditions, but sufficiently well entrenched that uh, it's not going to be easy to break in quickly when you know as they do the disperse back yeah and you know this seems to be i think within most indicator groups there's typically a couple of you know like i th- again i'm a classroom guy um you know kydoris brevilabris it's like seems to be the last <laughs> to go at all times and whether it, you're talking about acidification impact uh, metal contamination is just a hell of a lot more hardy than some of its competitors, and it's a generalist. It can change. Which didn't like uh, didn't like arsenic uh, contamination in the in the uh, pocket lake core. That mm-hmm. was a Daphnia one. 
you know, huh? and, and from ecotoxicological kind of laboratory studies, it's known that Daphnia can be fairly tolerant, certain species at least, can be fairly tolerant. So again, really all about uh, biology and understanding the system. Yeah, and that's, that's why it's interesting. And, uh, you know, in terms of like the, uh, you know, you want to answer the questions, but in terms of being drawn to this general field of study and that kind of like complicatedness is, and the puzzle aspect to it all is what, is why we're here. Yeah, I think they're, they're these kind of questions about uh, resource extraction or these really, I don't want to say catastrophic, but really profound. wide, yeah, profound impacts are really attractive ones for students. Uh, you know, they're interesting. There's the potential for really dramatic responses, both in terms of the impact and then potential recovery. So it's not surprising that a lot of more applied, if we can use the term applied paleoluminology uh, topics, especially now as we kind of rethink about all these historical impacts and start to try and do better moving forward are, are really common and, uh, and of interest to a lot of research groups doing paleo work across the country that I'm aware of and then also internationally. Yeah, and I think... Uh Again, just speaking for myself, and it's how I got into it in the first case is like, you know, there's like a, a romantic ang angle to it all. And when you're studying like a recovery, it's like, is the lake returning to itself? It's like got like an intrinsic, or at least for me, it had an intrinsic appeal in terms of, you know, at, at the master's level, here's a list of potential projects we're thinking of pursuing. It's like the one where it's like, oh, you know, Certification is a good news story to solve problem. Are there any legacy effects you worry about? And it's like, yeah, oh, that seems that's what drew my interest at on day one, a long, time, long time ago. Yep, and and I said about applied paleo limnology there as an idea, but I think one of the key take homes that we've kind of seen in this is that you really do have to understand the fundamental processes occurring, and in some cases they can be really complicated related to biogeochemistry and uh, ecological feedback and dispersal, so more biogeography kind of questions. There's a lot that goes into it from a fundamental uh, understanding to be able to answer those really kind of applied questions. Yeah, and physiological components and competition components and uh, well, no matter, even, even in the simplest cases or quote-unquote simplest cases, um, there's, gonna, there's always going to be a lot of moving parts. Um, and, you know, as a field of study um, or, you know, a region of applied paleolimnological, te paleolimnological techniques, um, it is going to be a consistent one um, for a variety of reasons. We're going to continue mining. Uh, it's just, you know, it's not stopping anytime soon um, because the world would not exist with, as, without it. And also because more stressors um, are going to be recognized after the fact. Um, and a lot of these cases, um, you know, the only way to get at baseline conditions is indirectly through, uh, sediments. And that is going to be continuing to be the issue as new environmental stressors or new impacts or new things to look at become revealed through time. Uh, and, yeah, and then this overarching climate change question and how, any of these kind of processes are altered in a different climatic environment um, is, you know, you could almost go back and do all of them again and think about it from that perspective. Yeah. Although I, I'm, interestingly, I have been involved in one or two um, analyses, which is kind of been establishing baseline before there's any impact. I did some work up in the Ring of Fire region of Ontario of the far north of Ontario uh, several years ago. And that is, you know, talking about Sudbury being up there for 130 years. Uh, imagine 130 years from now, I think that region is very likely to be transformed by resource extraction yeah. in some way um, in terms of the massive uh, cobalt deposits that are up there. And um, yeah, I don't know what its future is, but we've done some sampling of uh, the lakes get an idea of what communities are like today versus 
100, 150 years ago looking for the ch changes because long term, uh, yeah, disentangling uh, resource extraction impacts from climate impacts are going to be a very, very big deal everywhere. And, um, and they're already changing even before yeah. a shovel goes into the ground. Um, these regions are uh, considerably warmer than they were uh, 100 years ago. And the communities are reflecting that. Yep. Yeah, I, I forgot about mm, that one. I mean, cobalt's used in lithium-ion batteries, isn't it? So there's a huge... Oh, no, it's not uh, cobalt. It's, uh, sorry, it's chromium. Chromium, okay. Chromium. Also used in batteries. I'm yeah. sure there's, there's many of that, but I think the really big, <clears throat> um, like the marquee deposit up there is chromium. Yeah, either and, way. And very, uh, very lucrative kind of uh, potential for yeah. extraction. Yeah, I think it's like a um, chromium deposit on a globally significant kind of level. Like it might be number two or three in the entire planet in terms of uh, volume. Yeah, well, we're a resource-rich nation and um, historically have been. And uh, and one of the other like things that uh, associate with that is that it, it can be really hard to break apart the background level from the natural or of the natural... Uh, environmental impact of of that uh, resource from its extraction, and uh, that for all of these examples, the reason that we go and get those things from those areas because they're there, and many of them will be in the geology, in the water, in that environment. You know, you can see there's all sorts of pictures of uh, oil seeps of bitumen just leaking out of the Athabasca River or some of the tributaries of the Athabasca. That is in the environment, but being able to tease them apart is really challenging. And even though we're getting to the point where pre-impact monitoring is occurring, it's always going to be of a short duration. They're never going to monitor for 25 years before they start putting shovels in the ground. So we, you definitely need that perspective on, uh, on the historical range of variability even pre-climate change, in some cases, it may be important to have that. So, uh, paleo has a, a foot in the door. Absolutely, and uh, you know that is you know disentangling those background levels and identifying what is quote unquote normal for a particular region is uh, is always going to be tricky. Um, you know, just finding you know charcoal in your sediment core could be indicative of uh, you know. <laughs> Very local effects as there's a major barbecue uh, yeah. <laughs> or, you know, depending on the size of it, uh, there's a massive forest fire. Yep. It's all about perspective. <laughs> yeah. And, and one sample may not be able to tell you that. So, yep. you know, that's another reason you can apply paleo techniques at a regional scale in order to try and disentangle those localized versus more systematic regional effects. There you go. Good for something, eh? Yeah, no, it's a very uh, interesting, interesting topic and uh, one that will be interesting for a long time. Once again, thanks for listening to Core Ideas, the podcast dedicated to all things paleolimnology. If you'd like to reach out to us with a question or comment, please send us an email at coreideaspodcast at gmail.com. Or you can contact us through Twitter at Core Ideas Paleo. And there's only one A in paleo. All of our past episodes and the corresponding show notes slash blog posts can be found at our website, coreideas.ajezorski.ca. That's coreideas, one word, dot A-J-E-Z-I-O-R-S-K-I dot C-A. If you are so inclined, give us a rating or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. A five-star rating would be great, but to be honest, we don't really care all that much. We're just doing this for fun. And that's it for now. So join us again next time as we continue to explore paleolimnology in the knowledge economy era, sticking to our ethos of pure knowledge without the economy.